Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician at CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Eric Lee. We're talking about EMR implementation. This here is part three, so hopefully you've enjoyed the first two parts. This episode, we're going to pick up on training just before go live, and we'll talk about go live support and what happens just after. So, Eric, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take it away here. What are the key tips that you want to highlight about training for success? Okay, so real quick, I think training is one of those areas that can make or break the implementation. It really can, I mean, it's crucial. I don't think I can emphasize enough how important it is. And uh, I think during my most recent implementation, I heard a quote that from one of our analysts here that I thought was just perfect for what to keep in mind so that you stay sane, but it's generally that um, providers hate two things. They hate change and they hate the way things are. <laughs> right. So if you keep that in mind, and I, I think that'll help ground you going forward as to what to do and how to approach training. But I, I don't think I could emphasize how important it is to have a great, or like a really strong training team. So I'll give you two examples. For my first implementation, we had Cerner provide a really thick training guide and it was a two-week class of teaching the trainers and then they wanted to implement the train the trainer model and the two weeks of training just bored our proposed trainers I think that they were bored to tears you then question how much did they really retain from eight to ten business days of training in a row how much did they really practice how much did they retain how much did they take home and then teach successfully to those they were um, tasked with training in their respective staffs. So I think when you do that kind of a model, you really have to kind of question, is that the right model for your organization? What ended up happening was that we broke training down into three three-day sessions and actually had to develop some PowerPoint slide decks to make it a little bit more engaging you got to show a little bit more pictures, allow some time for them to um, practice the structured exercises so they can practice during the class. And you give them a little bit of homework to do after the class so that they can continue to practice in between sessions. And we would bring them back every couple of weeks to then learn a little bit more. So there's more of a crawl, walk, run philosophy in terms of teaching everybody of how to use the EHR so that by the time you go live, they're proficient enough from day one of the go live. Now, if you don't have the time or the resources to be able to do such a training model, I think you are then looking at what are you going to do if with Epic, for example, they recommend maybe four to six hours of training for the implementation. And I'll just say that I kind of push back a little bit and I, I insist on a full day of training for the providers for um, implementation training. I think six hours is geared towards the training and two hours is geared for the personalization lab at the end. And even then the feedback was from a lot of providers is that it was very fast paced. We could benefit from having another day or two for training. So I think you really need to step back and say, what 
do they need to be able to do to be able to function, see patients, place orders, use their in-basket, and sign charts, at least from an ambulatory perspective. Obviously, from an inpatient perspective, admit, discharge, and do everything else in between. And that's really the more difficult thing to do because you want to teach them, oh, this is how you do these tips and tricks, and you want to teach them intermediate and advanced level stuff. But really, you have to be realistic. How much are they going to soak in, absorb, and be able to use on day one of the go live when they're already stressed out that we're switching systems and a completely different way of seeing patients? What's your thoughts on training to a level of bare minimum survival versus training to what I call a really comfortable proficiency? Because I've seen it done both ways where we'll just get them to close enough and then we'll provide at the elbow support and try to pick it up from there versus more in-depth training, how would you play it? So I think it, it probably should be somewhere in between. And I think the philosophy between implementation training and new hires or how you train new hires is going mm -hmm. to be different. You gotta have a different focus. So for the implementation, it's pretty much a crash training within a compacted time period. And new hire, you're gonna have time to refine it as you go and continue to update materials and continue to reach out and you're training a much smaller number of, of folks. That's the main reason for the difference in philosophies. I like that. That's, I, that makes I, a lot you know, of sense. Yeah. And I think for implementations, I wouldn't want it to be where they could just barely crawl because you want to be able to try to cater to as many users as you can. But it's like when you were in school, and you could tell that there's a bell curve, right? There's students that really struggle. There are students that are really far ahead of the class. And then there's everyone else kind of that's in between. And you have to recognize that when you're teaching all your providers, folks are going to kind of fall and be stratified along this bell curve. And how are you going to be able to teach to the middle and get keep everyone caught up, identify those strugglers and say, we're going to have to target them with at the elbow support during the go live and maybe some supplemental sessions after the go live. And now I'm going to freak out some of my IT colleagues here. Do you recommend doing the training in a live environment with fake patients or the playground environment, knowing that you can't do any personalization in that playground, so you're teaching them things and they won't remember it by the time you get to the optimization session, versus doing in the live environment where you will have all kinds of people excited about just that concept. Uh, and you're going to have to really work hard to push that through. What do you think? Oh boy, that's a, yeah, that's a tough question. I think you'll get uh, any number of answers to that. So I'll, I'll tell you what I, what we did during our two implementations. So the first one, we actually did it all in the training environment. We did, make sure to build test patients and populate them as much as possible with scenarios, at least from a clinical perspective, that we demanded to be included as part of each test patient so that we could try to have as realistic a training class as possible. Close to the go-live, however, about maybe a few one to two weeks before the go-live, and sometimes even a little bit further out if a site was more medically complex in terms of the patients they took care of, we did allow production access to the providers because we wanted them to, we weren't able to convert problem lists over from because there was a paper to EHR implementation. So we wanted to allow them time to be able to start populating problem lists and 
fill out allergies and start kind of getting used to using the system in a production environment. We did restrict the order entry capabilities with uh, the live environment, but that was a way of converting data over from the paper world to the EHR world of going live. And also it was a kind of a nudge toward additional practice and built-in training so that folks were uh, ready for, um, to go live. And they already had, for those scheduled patients that were going to see that first month, they already had populated data with problem lists and social histories filled out. So they didn't have to manually enter all that in as they went live. For the most recent go live with Epic that we went through, we were able to convert a lot of this because it was an electronic system to electronic system implementation. But Epic, as you probably are familiar with, is a little bit more stringent about training must take place in a playground environment or a training domain, and then you can go into the playground environment and and, and practice more. They're very strict about allowing access into production. And I can certainly understand why they're very strict about that because you don't want people erroneously placing orders or you don't want people erroneously entering data and entering these notes because people really just don't understand that you shouldn't be documenting an epic on a patient before your implementation date. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's tough to do. And even with test patients, even after our go live, folks were entering data in the on the test patients, they don't understand that it could actually be sent across an interface to uh, a vendor. <laughs> you actually have to void the order kind of you know, in the in the Cerner world, or you would have to discontinue or cancel it in the in the Epic world. But either way, you're creating downstream effects with practicing with these test patients in a production environment. There's some workflows that are just really hard to test in a training environment, such as looking at the state's prescription drug management program or electronic prescribing of controlled substances. So those kinds of things, you're right, it's very dangerous to do it in production, and I don't do it in production, but boy, I wish I could. Um, Yes. You mentioned something that I really liked, which is having patients set up as scenarios in the playground or testing environment so you can kind of run through some things. I see some organizations, they're training towards a functionality. This is how you use the tool, but not necessarily putting it into clinical context. What have you found to be more successful? I'm going to, unfortunately, having lived through two of these, I'm going to tell you what what my experiences were and then what my what my recommendation would be. So mm-hmm. first implementation, we had 35 institutions that were going to go live and they were all like mom and pop kind of shops in terms of how they operated. Workflows weren't uniform and this was an opportunity to try to standardize as much as possible. So there was probably a couple of months spent toward the beginning of the implementation of defining how many workflows are there and then defining what those workflows were. And with our limited knowledge of Cerner and working with our Cerner colleagues on the project team, trying to make adjustments or add Cerner phrasing or uh, terms into the workflow so that people would eventually be able to understand and recognize that this workflow is really going to be the best way for you to try to achieve a goal, whatever you know, process you wanted to complete after you've completed training and you implemented, really it should be, how do I do this? Well, what does the workflow say? And that was a very common response and people got 
very habituated to going to the designated organization website, downloading that workbook of workflows to their desktop and popping it open and so they could do a quick PDF search and see how they order a lab test or how lab staff would then process the specimen once collected. So all of these different steps in terms of uh, outlining them, I, I would highly recommend that you do that. Now, the most recent implementation I was in, we didn't have the luxury of time to be able to do that. It was a very quick implementation, really more, more of like 10 months once you really got started with it. Mm. So trying to define the workflows when we had over 40 different locations that all had different ways of using the legacy system to achieve a, an outcome uh, made it a little bit more challenging. And also when we're trying to move toward a team-based care model and defining that when folks didn't really know how to use Epic and use it properly is what is the most challenging things in terms of developing workflows. So yeah, unfortunately, I think we went through training and it was more functionality-based. Here's how you use the tool. And then people would ask, well, so then what do I do for these types of patients that I see? And you're then stuck because you're really saying, well, this is how you use the tool or this is how you use Epic to do this step. And of course, those workflows aren't the end-all be-all. You can always change and modify those workflows so that you are really using your proposed EHR as efficiently as possible. I think some of this is the difference between having a trainer do the training versus a provider. And what have you found it to be successful in training workflows versus the functionality? Yes, having specialists train specialists or providers training providers, I think is invaluable. We utilize that in both of the implementations that I was in and I think the feedback was tremendous. No matter you know what system you're trying to do, I think Folks are going to be much more receptive when they're being trained by a colleague who truly understands what kind of clinical context and the questions that they may be asked during the training class, as opposed to asking a trainer, no offense, but the trainers, they'll know the system and how to use it really well, but it takes a really special kind of dialed in trainer who is experienced and seasoned and really understands from having either done analyst work and done a lot of at the elbow support that they can sympathize with what a provider goes through and understand and appreciate the kind of questions they would be asking. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's absolutely critical is to have providers training providers. The problem is, is that that's expensive because oh, yeah. you're going to have to, first of all, you got to take your lead, your super users or whatever you want to call them and take them out of a clinical environment to train them up so that they are skilled enough to train others. And then they have to go and do the training for the others. And then after go live, they're going to probably be the ones giving the support. So there's a pretty big dollar commitment, but you cannot cheap out at this point. You're spending however many millions to take this thing live. And whether that's nursing or doctors, you've got to have end users right there who understand, have lived this, and know the workflows and understand how the tool is going to function in those workflows. So I think you're spot on. I couldn't agree more. And I think as a CMIO, you need to make sure your CIO is aware of when they're negotiating the contract that they are budgeting money for this because it is going to be lost revenue. 
I'm fortunate that at both of the organizations I was part of, the you know, leadership recognized the need for this. And I did have to kind of go around to the different, my physician leader colleagues here at Ultimate and really ask and get, get them on board with it. But my colleagues were very supportive. They understood that this was something that would be in their best interest and, and their provider staff's best interest in the long run. So I think that's what helps significantly with getting the buy-in. I think it also helps that Epic is really in pushing for specialist training specialists. And when you get this recommendation from the party that you're signing a contract with and that you're going into an implementation with, and they're saying this is what this is the best practice, that really helps strengthen your argument as well. Being able to get that buy-in from the vendor that you're going live with is important, but then also you have to do additional kind of networking with your colleagues and making sure that they're comfortable with it and negotiate how much time is going to be taken away from their clinical duties to be able to train, to be the trainer, right? And then teach the classes and what that kind of schedule is going to look like. I think now it's great that Epic is really pushing the physician builder program so that you have a builder in every major specialty. And so those are your super users. They have a deep knowledge of the system. And I've seen systems that haven't used them and they do struggle. It's not unusual for the CFO to get some sticker shock after they see the bills start coming in for the implementation and they want to cut costs as fast as they can to try to stabilize and they may cut the super users, which can be very painful. So let's just briefly, uh, what did you find to be effective in terms of, yeah, you're going to have classroom training, but are you doing videos? Are you doing tip sheets? Are you doing drop-in sessions in the, in the uh, physician lounge? What was effective? The, something you'd really recommend if someone's going live saying, you got to do this one thing. What would that be? I wish there was a magic pill for this, but the reality is we're... As human beings, we all have different learning styles. You, you got to be able to cater and accommodate those folks, however you learn. I think I best learn in a, in a live classroom setting. And then I actually need to read paper after the fact. I think others would just be able to watch a video and be just fine. Whereas others prefer to just read off of a computer monitor or just listen to an audio book and, and call it a day and say, I have absorbed it really well. So... I think you have to be able to accommodate those different styles. We use live classroom settings. We allow for follow-up sessions after we implemented. We allowed for a lot scheduling one-on-one sessions for a couple of hours at a time. We had exercise booklets with tips and tricks and um, practice exercises that we gave out at the end of class so they could go home and practice. We do have webinars that we have posted and of course, the tip sheets are uh, invaluable. I think what we've done uh, here at Ultimate is that we posted our tip sheets inside the Learning Home dashboard in Epic, which is what you see when you log in by default. We also have our, all our tip sheets organized on our organization's um, website and our intranet so that if, if you're not in the EHR or in Epic, you can reference the tip sheet as well and see how other roles do processes within it. I think Cerner has a, a dashboard as well in terms of posting quick videos, similar to the Epic, it's possible kind of videos. Um, Cerner will have that. Um, they have a place where you can um, store tip sheets as well. 
I did that at my previous organization, created a library, a website, an internal website, where we had the tip sheets and the videos on the same topic all co-located. So if you're really, all right, how do I do MedRec? There'd be a tip sheet on MedRec, there'd be a video on MedRec. And I do recommend trying to use the vendor videos because I tried making my own content, which was great until the version changed. Now I gotta go do it all again. Oh, so yes. with the frequency of the version changes, that just became unsustainable. But I, as you said, people learn in different ways. And so some people like tip sheets and some people like videos and some just like the audio. So we tried to have all that content under the caption of, well, this is placing orders or this is doing an admission, that kind of simplicity. So, all right, let's go to the big day. It's uh, Sunday at 2 a.m., which is when all these things tend to take place. <laughs> and they've flipped the switch and the system's coming up. And what's that first day like? I think first day, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of nervous, pent-up energy, of course, but it's a time of very high stress and people are on edge. You have to be ready to provide support as quickly as possible and try to alleviate uh, concerns as well as you can and address tickets. I think generally your most frequent tickets being submitted the first day or two is going to be revolved around access. I can't log in or I forgot my password or my, I need my password reset kind of deal. I think once they're in, hopefully they can remember how to do a few types of things. I think that the next type of issue you might get from a provider perspective is how do you order this? How do you order that? I think you have to be prepared to deal with those kinds of issues at least the first few days. I think as you go into the implementation, you're going to start getting more questions related to billing in basket. What do I do with this? How do I deal with a telephone encounter versus a result notes versus how do I forward this to my colleague and who gets notified on a lab test that I ordered when I'm covering a colleague? Is it me or is it my, or is it my colleague? So those are a little bit deep, higher level or deeper knowledge type questions that will surface the further into the implementation you go. We struggle with the challenge of how much at the elbow support do we have to provide, whether that's in the clinic or the, or the hospital, you want to have people available on the floor, but do they go into the exam room with you in the clinics? And I think one of the things CIOs and CFOs will frequently say, we really got to watch our expenses here, but we don't have the luxury of training just the top 25%. You got to worry about the bottom 25%. They cannot collapse on go live day or the week or two after go live. So we tend to go heavy on the support model. What do you do if you've got, let's just take an outside clinic, a primary care clinic, and it's a four person clinic. How much at the elbow support are you putting in there? Is it one-to-one -one or is it less? You got to figure out how much money is allotted for at the elbow support. Epic and Cerner and each vendor will tell you what the recommended ratio of super users or at the elbow support person to the number of end users that they would be responsible for supporting. But ultimately your cost and your layout of your different sites is going to help factor into what you think the, the ratio would be. I ended up having a super user support model in which I had to utilize as all providers that had some admin time, so some leadership roles, 
I had to leverage them as super users so that we would minimize our uh, impact of going live because we'd be converting their administrative time to providing at the elbow support. The implementations are one of those unifying initiatives, right? With the yeah. organization, it's all, <laughs> all hands, hands on deck. deck. Right. So at our organization it was no different. Like we canceled all administrative meetings. Um, everything was focused on the Epic implementation. So all our medical leadership was fo- on the ground in the clinic, serving as super users. We had additional full-time providers that I prioritized those that had Epic experience and ha- had them go through a super user class and then attend an end user class that have additional practice with providing at the elbow support. But those are the folks that we had providing at the elbow support in our clinics. Now, my CIO and my project director were both very seasoned and uh, very experienced at having multiple implementations under both their belts. So we knew what the ratio was going to be and actually had contacts with multiple vendors that provide at the elbow support. So we went through a process in soliciting bids and listening to presentations and going through each of the resumes of the staff that they were going to send to us Mm -hmm. and making sure, right, that they are actually certified or they have extensive experience in supporting the different modules that we were implementing. So with us, because I think we were the first organization to implement social care for our PACE program for Epic, none of the at the elbow support folks were going to have social care experience. But we had to get folks that had extensive ambulatory experience to help support PACE. And then we were relying on our internal network of super users for the PACE program, especially. Wisdom is a little bit more on the unique side. I think with Cadence and Prelude and ambulatory, you're going to get, you're not going to have problems finding at the elbow support, but wisdom is a little bit harder to come by. So I think those are the, the differentiating factors in terms of helping us figure out which vendor we were going to go with. Of course, price matters as well and how many bodies you can you know, supply across our clinics and what the rollback would be if the number of tickets being submitted over the course of the go live is decreasing when you can start to scale back from week one to week two in terms of how many at the elbow support folks are there. So that all that has to be taken into consideration so that you're not blowing the budget on at the elbow support yet providing more than enough support so that folks do feel comfortable during the implementation. So I like to blend go live and optimization together pretty closely so that it's seamless. I don't consider it a separate project. I consider it all part of the of go live that okay you're going live and you're at the elbow support is mostly on stabilization and yes you can get the orders in but then you want to start showing them some of the tips and tricks by week two three four i don't believe waiting six months i want to try to catch providers before they start developing those bad habits when you've done go lives have you done a separate distinct optimization program or is it just you keep that out the elbow support going but they start doing some more fancy things i, I guess maybe it's a shortcoming on my part I'm, I'm not as advanced as you are mark i'm just you know, i think we were focused on the go live and really more of i think stabilizing 
our build and the and working down the number of tickets becomes one of the pressing priorities after you implement and to finish the go live period. But I do agree with you. You do need to keep your super users engaged. You do need to supplement with additional training as quickly as you can after the implementation. So uh, a couple of a few things that we've been doing, and I think this will vary from organization to organization, but we've been holding monthly super user forums. We send out communications by email twice a month. We had a couple of Saturday sessions um, that were optional, but very uh, well attended and, and actually pretty popular with our providers. I think our first one, we had um, 40 providers attend and we maxed out. And with our second one, we had almost 20 providers attend because the appetite's there. They want to learn how to use the tool. They want to become more efficient. And then lastly, I recommend the power user program. It can be a little overwhelming in terms of how many <laughs> tips they, they teach you, at least from an Epic perspective. But I am glad that I'm going through that power user certification process because it's pretty invaluable with what they do. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a, it was a great program. It's free. So yeah, for, for the Epic systems out there, try to get as many of your people as you can get through on power user class. As a matter of fact, we are starting to think about tying it to some of the performance bonuses for the employee providers of, hey, you got to show your certificate by this date if you want to get your performance bonus because physicians do like having mastery over their tools. They don't like being uncomfortable with their main tool that they use every day. Mm-hmm. So the, giving them whatever the support they need has been really useful and valuable for their long-term success. One thing we did forget to talk about is cutting back on the volume, reducing the uh, number of patients you're going to see during go live and optimization so that you actually have time to do that one-on-one teaching, support, have some time to build a, a smart phrase or whatever the term is in your respective EMR. What did you do in terms of reduction and for how long? So, yeah, I think the philosophies will vary debate based on the appetite for decreased revenue during your implementation, but no doubt, right? Yeah. So for the first implementation I went through, because it was a paper to EHR conversion, that was going to be much more challenging. You have to account for the fact that your providers may not have basic computer skills. There's a little bit more of a challenge in terms of making sure folks have basic computer proficiency and then going live with that. So For that first implementation, we did have a ramp up period. I can't remember exactly. I think we we cut it down to maybe about 40% and then would ramp up by one to two patients per week until they were at full schedules. With the most recent implementation we did, we actually had no ramp up. And this is an epic recommendation as well with no ramp up. They're saying the rationale is that when you're going from an electronic system to an electronic system, the basic computer skills are there. It's just learning and retraining your muscle memory with using a new electronic system to be able to see patients. And so messaging that to your colleagues, however, is is much more challenging because they're not going to be willing to listen to that and agree with that. While your executive leadership may embrace that, your colleagues are not. So I had to work on a compromise, and the compromise was I would have one to two designated super users per site. And because there was no ramp up, 
though if what I asked of my provider super users was to see a patient or two per hour, especially after the first hours of the day, first few hours of the day, when it would be very common to have a backup and more folks in the waiting room waiting to be seen. I generally ask between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. and between the hours of like 3 to 5 p.m. to try to see a couple of patients to help your colleagues so that the providers, in effect, did not have a full schedule to, of patients to see. They would hopefully be helped or assisted by the super users. Now, when you do that, though, yeah, your provider super users are not there to be at the elbow to directly support a provider. And so that's where I was relying on the vendors with the at-the-elbow support to help walk, get those providers through. I know that the patients, maybe not between one EMR to another, but when you went paper to, to electronic, we definitely got feedback from our patients. We feel the disconnect. We don't think you're looking at us. You're more distracted and focusing on the computer screen. Absolutely, that's going to happen. It probably happens to some extent going from one EMR to another. And then one organization I was at uh, actually surveyed their providers at about three months after uh, go live. Well, what did you expect you were going to see? <laughs> no one is doing cartwheels down the hallway at three months out. By six mm -hmm. months or a year, sure. But mm -hmm. what about you? what's your experience in that regard? Yeah, we've been live for four and a half months, and actually um, today we did we took six months of version upgrades from Epic. So mm -hmm. today's our first version upgrade that we're going live with, and. I'd have to agree with you there to, if I had to be honest. I think providers are happier with Epic as opposed to our legacy EHR, but I wouldn't say they're exactly doing cartwheels down the street and ready to, um, ready to celebrate. Mm -hmm. I do think providers are happier on the whole, however, and so I would say there's maybe cautious optimism. So on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say maybe it's a seven or eight, but some providers are at a 10 out of 10 in terms of satisfaction and happiness, and others are going to be a little bit on the lower end of the scale. But, you know, that's how kind of how things are with human nature. So you can't make everyone happy. Eric, I think this has been fantastic. A really great overview, really tough topic, big topic. No way to shortchange this one. I want to thank you for sticking through, going through the whole thing with me. You've been fantastic. Anything else you want to throw out there for someone who's about to go live with an EMR implementation that's going to save their hide? What would you say to them if they're going live in, in the next week or so? I would say keep your head up. I know it's very tough. The amount of questions and issues that may arise may be overwhelming, but you, you got to maintain perspective. You're going to get through this. I've been very fortunate in both my implementations that I've had fabulous teammates. So my CIO is Ray Lowe. He's absolutely fabulous. I've been very fortunate to be able to partner with him. My project director, Laura Bravo, is ex extremely seasoned with implementation. So she pretty much had a plan for everything. My associate medical director of CI, Michael Eaton, was extremely invaluable as well. I leaned on him heavily since I was new to the organization, and he knew the history of everything in terms of decisions made, how the structure of the organization was laid out. These implementations are heavily dependent on teamwork. So 
lean on your teammates. You're going to get through. You support your teammates and your, your teammates will support you and you can get through this. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train headed toward you. Great advice. Well, thanks again, Eric. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.